We're not crazy, the system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Wednesdays 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on Pacifica Affiliate WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in uh, to Madness Radio. I'm your host, uh, Will Hall. And today we have a friend and colleague, Gail Hornstein, professor at Mount Holyoke College and has done a lot of writing and research about um, madness and people's experiences of madness and also the movement of people who've been through uh, madness. And so that's um, coming up. But first, a uh, few words about the Freedom Center and the Icarus Project, who are the co-sponsors of Madness Radio. Freedom Center is a Northampton, Massachusetts-based um, community of people who have different um, psychiatric labels like schizophrenia, bipolar, uh, depression, borderline, um, and our allies and people who also go through extreme states that um, would get or might get um, given psychiatric labels. And um, we're looking for alternatives to the mainstream system. We have a bunch of different um, holistic services, yoga classes, um, writing groups. Um, We have an acupuncture clinic, uh, support group. Um, We also do um, public events. We do legal advocacy and activism for human rights. Um, So check out our website, which is freedom-center.org. And Madness Radio is also co-sponsored by the Icarus Project, uh, named after the Greek myth of the boy who flew too close to the sun um, and uh, drowned in the sea because he didn't listen to the warnings about his wings of wax and feathers. Uh, The idea is that people who have um, extreme states of consciousness, they get labeled bipolar or schizophrenia. Uh, We really have dangerous gifts, and these are um, aspects of us that need to be cultivated and taken care of. And so people are coming together um, through the Icarus Project to look at creativity and spirituality and alternative ways of understanding um, what we experience. So check out the Icarus Project website, theicarusproject.net. So my guest today is Professor Gail Hornstein. Gail is a tenured psychology professor at Mount Holyoke College in Hadley, Massachusetts, which is right nearby um, Northampton, where the Freedom Center is. And she is the author of To Redeem One Person is to Redeem the World, which is the biography of psychoanalyst Frida Fromm-Reichmann, who worked with a lot of people who were um, considered schizophrenic or psychotic. And she's also working on a book now um, about um, the MAD movement, the International Survivor Movement. And Gail's going to be telling us about, about that. Um, and Gail has, it's really great to have Gail on the show. Gail, Gail's been an incredible ally and friend for many years and has done just amazing things, um, supporting the Freedom Center, helping us pull together events and making contacts, um, with the Freedom Center internationally and, um, working with us on a film series and, and all kinds of different projects. So it's really great to have, to have Gail on the show. So welcome Gail Hornstein. Thanks so much, Will. It's a real, real pleasure to be on. Yeah, and so you're, you've, you've been traveling. I know you go back and forth um, to uh, England and uh, you know, between England and the United States, but you're back in, um, in uh, western Massachusetts now. Yes, I'm back for a while working on my current research and um, really glad to have this opportunity to talk with you um, because it's fantastic that Freedom Center's got a radio show now. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, I remember you were actually one of our first guests back in the olden days when we first started first started the show and I just want to call people's attention to that because it's it's archived on the website and Gail talks a lot about her um your first book um about Frida Fromm Reichman but I really want to get into this whole question of the international survivor movement because is that fair to say that's what your new book is about is it's about the the movement um in Europe and the US um that's certainly part of it will uh the book is going to be called Agnes's Jacket a psychologist's search for the meanings of madness, and it's going to be out probably uh, the winter, not this coming winter, but the following winter, um, the end of next year, the end of 2008. Um, And it certainly has part of its focus on the contemporary like survivor movement, but it also has a number of historical figures um, because really the focus of the book is on understanding madness from the point of view of people who've experienced it. 
and I'm writing for a very general audience, but I am writing, and that makes the subtitle makes sense. Um, I'm writing as someone trained in psychology. I'm an academic psychologist. I have a PhD in psychology, but I'm not a psychotherapist. I don't do therapy with people, as I sometimes joke with people when I meet them in uh, various movement circumstances. I've never given anyone a medication. I've never put anyone in a hospital. I've never seen anyone in psychotherapy. I'm not part of the mental health um, establishment in any way, but I am a psychology professor and I teach undergraduate students psychology and I've been doing that for 30 years. So that's really, so, the, uh, that's really the thread of your, um, that goes through your work, this idea of, of exploring madness or craziness or extreme states of consciousness or whatever you want to call it from the perspective of the people who've, who've been through it themselves. Is that right? That's exactly right. And the whole point of this book is to say as someone who is a psychology professor, that what we really need to understand about these states and these kinds of experiences should start from people's firsthand experience. It should not start from the DSM, the theories of professionals, etc. It should start from the lived experience of people who have, I think, extraordinarily powerful powerfully talked about and written about their subjective lives. So, so when I say it's not only about the contemporary MAD movement, I think it, what's important to note is that people have written narratives of madness for hundreds of years. And what I want to do, among many other things in this book, is to draw people's attention to the huge body of materials that exist even before the contemporary mad movement of people doing everything possible, uh, under, often under extraordinarily difficult circumstances in which they were locked up in hospitals and they didn't have pencils and they didn't have any means by which to record their experience. They've done so anyway. So who is who is Agnes? I know you said that the name of the book was Agnes's Jacket. So who, oh, is, who is this I'm Agnes? So glad, <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that, Will, because I love to be able to tell people about this. And this is the title of the book, and it will be the title, the, the image uh, on the front of the book. Um, let me tell people about Agnes Richter. Um, Agnes Richter was a patient in a mental institution in Germany in the 1890s. She was put there against her will. She was kept there for a significant period of her life. She died in this institution. Um, Agnes has a fascinating story, which I'll tell in the book and which I won't reveal as yet. But ah, I will it's say mysterious, this, very mysterious. <laughs> it, it is very mysterious, and it's taken me many years of research to ferret out Agnes's story. But I will tell you why it's called Agnes's Jacket. Agnes Richter, while she was in this institution, created a jacket. And when I say created, I mean first the first thing she did was create the actual jacket itself. And as best as we can tell, and I've done a lot of, it's taken a lot of research to figure this out, um, mental patients in Germany in the 1890s were forced to wear uniforms, much as prisoners were. Uh, this was a standard kind of thing for mental patients in Europe uh, until well into the 20th century. They were given uniforms made out of a very uh, strong kind of cotton or linen. And uh, Agnes was a trained seamstress. And as best as we can tell, she took the uniform that was given to her by the hospital authorities, ripped it up, re-sewed it into a beautiful jacket. Um, a very attractive jacket, a very feminine jacket uh, with a lot of uh, very uh, elaborate detail in its stitchery. And then, having created this jacket, she then embroidered onto every single inch of this jacket, the inside, the outside, the collar, the sleeves, etc., an autobiographical text, which is on the surface of the jacket in many colors of thread, that tells an extraordinary story. 
Wow, that's uh, that's really amazing. Is this? I, I'm kind of remembering um, some sort of jacket that was at the Visionary Art Museum in Baltimore. That's not where the jacket is now, is it? No, this jacket has never been in the United States. Uh, okay, um, I must be. There must be some other mental patient. There are a few it. other people mm-hmm. who have done somewhat similar things to this, although not as intensely and not as mysteriously uh, as Agnes Richter. So she uh, actually put jack- a, a whole story, and she embroidered the lettering for the story? Uh, yes. On, wow. on every single inch of the jacket, most of it is on the inside of the jacket, and we know that she wore the jacket. There are perspiration stains in it and other signs of wear. So we know that she wore the jacket. So just imagine, here is a person... Uh, forcibly incarcerated in a mental institution who is walking around the ward wearing a beautiful jacket of her own creation with a text on the outside of it. It's as if she was wearing the book that she wrote. But for much of the surface of the jacket, it's only the outside of the letters that we see. You see the backs of the letters because the inside... The jacket is the uh, word. Most of the words are embroidered on the inside, worn essentially against her skin, almost as if they were a tattoo. Um, and this is a very extraordinary thing to have done. She had to have looked very, very powerful, walking around this institution wearing this. Um, it's just an incredible. May, it's an incredible image. And this was in, in the 1890s. You said yes. Yes. Yes, and absolutely nothing was known. This this jacket is in a museum in Heidelberg in Germany, and um, absolutely nothing was known about uh, Agnes Richter except her name, uh, which is on a tag on the front of the jacket. Um, and part of the story of my book is the story of finding out who she was, finding out how she happened to create this jacket, um, and talking about the jacket. The reason I've titled the book Agnes's Jacket is because What's so powerful about this person's experience is that she, under the most dreadful possible circumstances, she was intensely motivated to tell the story of her experience, even in this highly unusual way, to tell it in embroidery, using the main talent that she had, that of stitchery. Um, and to Agnes, Agnes has, of course, long died, but we have the testimony of her experience in the form of the material object, the jacket itself. And to me, that symbolically represents, in the most powerful possible way, the stories of thousands of other people who've been incarcerated in mental institutions, um, who have wanted to tell their stories, who have tried to tell their stories, who have been prevented from telling their stories, um, including, of course, people today who have, no matter what their hospitalization circumstances, at least they have the opportunity to participate in an oral history project, to perhaps get their story published, to put it on a website, etc., in ways that somebody like Agnes Richter, who was kept on a locked ward for her whole adult life, never could do. And I guess if people want to find out more about that, they're just going to have to wait for your for your book to come out, huh? That's true, Will. <laughs> and when and when is it going to be out? Uh, it's going to be out in the winter of 2008-2009, wow, so well, that's, about a year and a half from now. Yeah, that's that's really exciting. Well, congratulations on that. And until then, in the meantime, people can read your other book, which is the um, the biography of a really extraordinary psychoanalyst, Frieda Fromm-Reichmann, who was very much committed to um, therapy and understanding the kinds of experiences um, that now get kind of just sort of um, written off as biochemical mistakes and errors happening in time in, inside people's inside people's brains. So that's really yes. The, you know, let me just um, mm-hmm. note one thing that's really an interesting connection between these two. Um, projects of mine is that although Frieda Fromm-Reichmann was a psychoanalyst, she was a, a therapist. So unlike me, she was you know working with people um, and uh, trying to help them and trying to help change their lives and so on, um, and was very much 
partly because she was from an age in which doctors were very revered and she was German and there are many respects in which she was very much sort of an authority and in a very different relation to patients, say, than someone like me, who's a professor. Um, still, she was herself deeply interested in written narratives of madness experienced by patients. She helped to get a very important narrative from the 19th century republished in the 20th century, a book called The Philosophy of Insanity, um, which is a, a major work of theory by someone who was uh, a patient in Scotland. Um, and some of my interest in uh, first-person narratives, interestingly, I think, comes from Frieda from Reichman, who you would think wouldn't necessarily be interested in these accounts written by patients, since she was herself a doctor, but she was very interested in them. So that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's really fascinating. I mean, I think um, there's so many different directions to go, and I know if people are interested in finding out more about your first book, there is the other interview that we, that we did, and I want to talk about the, um, the international mad movement, but I'm really, you're really raising a lot of my like curiosity and interest about this whole question of patient um, narratives and people telling their stories. And it sounds like, I mean, it was more difficult for people to get those stories heard, um, you know, earlier in the 19th century. But I'm wondering, what are your, what are your thoughts about the way in which the storytelling and the experiences and people telling their accounts what are your thoughts about how that gets shaped by the media and by um, working with therapists and the whole language around uh, medication? One of the things that strikes me is that I think that we have in the accounts of, of madness that we do have, we have accounts of people going to the depths of depression or the depths of schizophrenia or whatever you want to call it. And then often the best-selling books end with the person saying, finally, I got on medication and now I feel better. And I'm sure that, that there is validity of that for people. But I'm also wondering to what degree does the society kind of shape what becomes thinkable and how does the story that gets told get written in part by the collaboration between the, the patient and the doctors and the institutions and the sort of mental health establishment these days? That's a crucial question, Will, and there's really a lot of directions to go with that. Let me, let me just say two things to start with. First of all, in the um, study that I've made for a number of years of this huge range of first-person narratives that exist. And, and let me mention that if people are interested, um, I've compiled a bibliography. Bibliography, yeah. It, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it, that because it's an amazing thing that you did. It's, it's now in its third edition, and I'll do a new one every few years to keep it updated. Um, it currently has 600 titles on it, and these titles are only books rather than articles, and only in English, just because of my own limitations uh, of what materials I can gather. Um, and so if you think about the fact that there are published madness narratives, the earliest one is um, from the 15th century. The most recent one, I always say to people, is from last month. Um, and as I do a new update of the bibliography, it will always be the newest one is from last month because there are constantly more such narratives being published. But if you think about the fact that there are 600 narratives on the third edition, there is every possible kind of experience represented in these books. So while the point you make is a very, very important one, and I'm going to come right back to it, of how there's often a kind of triumphal, uh, medicalized ending to certain of these accounts. There is also every other possibility. And this is, again, why I think it's so important for people in general, but also mental health professionals in particular, to start from these works in their understanding of madness experiences, because there are people who have written about how no treatment they've ever ever been given has helped them. There are people who've written, amazingly enough, testimonies that say ECT was the thing that really helped them. There are people who've written accounts that say various medications helped them. There are people that have written accounts that say psychotherapy helped them. And there are many, many people, I would say the majority of such narratives, who, of people who write about how no medical treatment helped them and they cured themselves. And I think 
here we should remember one of the most important narratives ever published, Clifford Beer's uh, a very important work, published in the, originally in the 1920s and uh, ha- having gone through many, many editions, um, called A Mind That Found Itself. And I think that's a very powerful title to convey a lot of the spirit of what's captured in these works. Absolutely. Well, tell go- us, tell us, yeah, tell us a little bit about that that book, just to give us a sense of it, since it's so important. Well, um, and actually, I'm I'm realizing, as I just said, this is the problem with live radio. Um, I'm yeah. realizing, as I just said, I I, I think. What I've just said is the publication date uh, is wrong. I think it's 1908, actually, uh, is the original publication of A Mind That Found Itself. Um, Clifford Beers, I'll just say a few words about him. Um, And I recommend this book to everyone. It's been republished. It's uh, currently in print. You can buy it in paperback. I use it in a class that I teach on this topic. Um, Clifford Beers was a Yale-educated, middle-class man, successful businessman in Connecticut, in the United States, um, who had uh, a fairly typical kind of uh, breakdown. He would today be uh, diagnosed probably bipolar. He was diagnosed at the time manic depressive. Um, He had very spectacular kinds of experiences, very dramatic ones. Um, He had a lot of suspicion as part of his uh, experience. And he was hospitalized um, first in a fairly elite private institution and then in a public state institution um, and had many terrible experiences in these hospitals. Um, And when he finally got out, he changed the entire course of his life and rededicated himself. He was essentially an early movement activist. He rededicated himself to advancing the situation of institutionalized mental patients and making sure that no one else would have to go through the things that he had gone through. And he started an organization called um, the uh, uh, National Hygiene Association, um, and he he had an interesting kind of politics. He decided that he would get further with his organization by enlisting the support of psychiatrists rather than only fighting against them, although his book is very, very critical of psychiatry. Um, and so he got many very prominent American psychiatrists to be uh, supporters of his, and his organization became a major force in American culture in the 1930s and 40s and, and following that. Clifford Beers had a spectacularly successful career as an activist on behalf of other patients. This book went through many, many, many editions, um, and as I say, is still currently available. And it's called um, A Mind That Found Itself. Yes. And well, you raised something I think is really interesting, which is um, a p- part of the motivation for your work, I'm sure, which is that to change the way that professionals get trained. And I guess, you know, the idea that they should actually be listening to what people with these experiences are saying. But how would you respond to the charge that would say, well, you can't really trust what people say about themselves because, after all, they're mentally ill and so they don't really know what's, uh, what's going on. It's sort of like the question of the reliability of the narrator, so to speak, how would you how would you respond to that? Just to kind of give that's you a, a real, devil's a give really you a little crucial. devil's advocate kind of question. No, it's a really crucial question, and it's one that I am writing against every day. Um, I think I think we would all agree that people of all kinds, including people with mental illness diagnoses, but including other people as well, have states of mind that make them difficult to talk to, uh, perhaps uh, isolate them, perhaps cut them off from other people, perhaps make them hard to understand. There are certainly people without mental illness diagnoses who get occasionally into states of anger, for example, in which they would be very hard to reach. There are people who are very uninsightful into their own psychological experience. They just don't pay much attention to it. I don't have much to say about it. Uh, I think the crucial thing to emphasize is that regardless of whether someone has a mental illness diagnosis, they have a tremendous amount of insight into their own experience and into what would be helpful to them if they're in a state that they themselves would see as a crisis for which they need help. I think that's true of people in general, 
and I think it's true of people who have mental illness diagnoses. And so I think in, in, in the most um, fundamental sense, it's simply wrong to say people with mental illness diagnoses are lack insight. This is one of the words that's used by psychiatrists. Um, uh, can't be talked to, aren't accessible, etc. I think, of course, it's the case that people do have times when they are like that. But I don't think that people with mental illness diagnoses are the only people who have times when they're like that. Or even that you shouldn't that you shouldn't talk to people, that there's this idea that if you talk to someone exactly. about their voices or about their psychosis, that it's going to somehow exacerbate it and, and that uh, make it worse. That, I think, is worse. exactly and, wrong. Yeah. yeah I, think, I, I think all the evidence shows that that is exactly wrong. And, you know, I, I can say a lot more about that and about some of the current um, groups in Europe, but one thing I wanted to to just say before we got any further in this in this discussion is to go back to the original question you asked about um, books that have a kind of triumphal medical ending and whether people have um, taken over really the dominant what we could call the dominant discourse um, to talk about their own experience and I think that's actually a terrible problem that does in fact occur and here I would um, encourage people to read a very powerful article uh, written by two uh, activists in the UK, Rufus May and Jackie Dillon, um, published in a uh, uh, magazine in uh, Britain called Open Mind um, several years ago, um, a very powerful short article in which they use the expression colonizing to, to describe the process by which people's own personal experience can be, in their usage, colonized by the medical establishment so that a person not only learns to use words like biochemical imbalance and bipolar illness and so on to describe their own experience, but they become unable to describe their own experience in any words other than those. That's the sense in which they mean colonize, that the person's own idiosyncratic ways of understanding what's going on with them become covered over and taken over in a kind of imperialist way. And I think it's, a, I think it's an interesting comparison to colonialism because, I mean, there is an aspect, a, certainly a, a huge aspect of colonialism that's just a, a one-way, um, uh, aggressive sort of like taking over. But there's also a way in which uh, colonialism kind of offers insight um, uh, incentives and enticements and there's a certain luring and a seductiveness that can happen like okay we're going to give you this technology we're going to give you access to these markets we're going to give you civilizing education and so colonialism has a way of of hooking in people um, from other cultures and other other countries other parts of the world into the dominant colonizer culture by saying hey we have something to offer you and there may I mean there may actually be things that need to be offered I mean colonized countries have experienced in increases in education increases in in uh, medication medicines um, health care for example we can debate whether those things are actually beneficial but um, you know there is a way in which there's sort of a two-way street that gets established and I know that what you're referring to someone describing their experience as a chemical imbalance or saying I have this label or this disorder there's a way in which there's a pressure but there's also an an, uh, an enticement or an incentive because hey if I actually do describe myself in this way it can sometimes be helpful it can sometimes get me access to certain kinds of things it can help me um, understand what I'm going through in a simple way that doctors are going to agree with that my family is going to agree with so this is a very complicated kind of relationship that got, that gets starts to be um, established there and it starts to be like well whose interests are being served and who where does the language actually come from and is the experience authentic or is it trained and are we taught to use certain words so i think it's a very provocative and interesting uh comparison with with colonization that you're raising there yes and that's why i find rufus may and jackie dylan's work so powerful and so useful and there are certainly many accounts uh that people have written of their own experience that are examples of this um, in which they have, for instance, a final chapter in their book that says clozapine cured me. Um, now, what I think is complicated here is, and I, I think this is exactly what you're you're getting out in your in your the comment you just made. I would never say when I read a book like that, um, clozapine didn't cure that person. I don't feel as if I'm in a position as a reader to make any statement whatsoever about the what we could call the truth value 
of that statement. But I do think, and this is, this is what I teach students every year in a class that I teach psychology students at Mount Holyoke um, on narratives of madness. What I do teach students, and I do believe, is that of the many ways that people can frame the experience they're having, framing it in medical terms, which they've learned from their doctors, is one way. There are other ways that that same person could frame their same experience. And that, I think, is the important and provocative area for us to think about. Not that it's not useful sometimes for people to frame their experience in medical terms, but once we get beyond those diagnostic terms and we ask really, okay, what's the science that supports that? That's where we get into a lot of problems. So people might find it helpful to say, I have a biochemical imbalance, because it gives them a label and a way to frame what's going on for them. But if there isn't actually any evidence in terms of the real biochemistry that there is an imbalance, then that's a metaphor. And of all the metaphors that you could use, is that actually the best one? Yeah, and I think it's, it's I think really, it's an I think it's an excellent it's an excellent point. This is exactly where the Freedom Center has always kind of come from. Is it? It's this question of self determination. That look, if the person wants to decide how to describe themselves, and that's they they want to tell this story about who they are and what healed them, and this healed me or that healed me healed me. Then the point is just to respect that because it's coming from the person themselves, and there's ultimately no other real authority that you can lay on somebody other than their own authority about their own experience. So, And further, their account of what's helped them, for, for instance, may or may not have that close a relation to what they actually do in a pragmatic sense in terms of living their life right now. So here, here's where uh, I'll lead us into talking about something I know I know you're interested in, which is um, the Hearing Voices Network, um, which is uh, an, uh, a very broad-based organization of people all around the world, but especially um, vibrant in Britain, um, of people who have the experience that psychiatrists call auditory hallucinations. One of the most, from my point of view, one of the most brilliant organizing strategies and sociological insights of the Hearing Voices Network when it first began in the late 1980s um, was to say to its members, we have an agnostic view. As an organization, we have an agnostic view about what leads people to hear voices. We don't take a point of view as the HVN about what causes that experience. We welcome to our groups people who take any point of view they want to about their own experience. So I've gone to many HVN groups where there are people who say, there's something wrong with my brain that's leading me to hear voices. Other people say, I'm in connection with the spirit world. Other people say, I am having a religious experience and God is talking to me, or Jesus, or um, Buddha or any other uh, kind of ex religious experience. Um, there are people who say, I don't know what's causing this. I'm having this experience. I don't have a viewpoint about it. There are people who, in other words, take every theoretical perspective that one could imagine to understand their experience. And the HBN as a group says, we welcome all of those because what we're actually focused on in our meetings is what can help people in a pragmatic sense. Exactly. So it doesn't That's... actually make that much difference whether you say God is talking to me or I have a brain dysfunction. Right. Or... What you need to learn are ways to cope with that experience, ways exactly. to be able a to very... live a life in which that's part of it. It's a very pragmatic and even keep kind of a postmodern approach to knowledge. And it's definitely the approach that the Freedom Center has taken. We have all kinds of different people. And what's exciting, I think, is when people listen to each other's different perspectives and they learn to start thinking critically about their own and exploring kind of what um, what might be useful to them and uh, deepening their own understanding or changing their own understanding or whatever it is. So you, you brought up the Hearing Voices Network. And so maybe, because I know this is an aspect of your new book, maybe you can just kind of give us a sense of what is going on internationally. In the U.S., we tend to be very um, you know, isolationist as a country. You don't really know what's going on in the rest of the world. But give us a sense of what's going on in Europe with um, the survivor movement and, and these kinds of issues. Well, what's so exciting about what's going on in the Hearing Voices Network right now is how it's moved to a new level. Let me just 
kind of say a word or two about where it's been and how it's gotten to this point. Um, as an organization, as I say, it was founded in the late 18, uh, 1980s, uh, I think 1989, um, and has developed in many different countries, but Britain, um, for a variety of interesting historical and political and economic reasons, has become the world center of this movement. Right now, there are 160 peer support groups, HVN support groups, in Britain alone. You can live anywhere in Britain. You can live in a small town. You can live in a rural area. You can live in a city, and you can access close to you a group that you can visit regularly in which people who have the experience of hearing voices can support one another, help one another, uh, and make a huge pragmatic difference in each other's lives. Now, over the past 10 or 15 years, HVN has shown how powerful and helpful it can be to people who find it. Um, but of course, the main mental health establishment is still viewing this kind of experience as hallucinations and prescribing medication for people to get rid of these hallucinations and taking the viewpoint that there isn't anything useful to learn from them. Um, the most exciting development that's been happening in the past few years in HBN is that in Britain, again especially, the main mental health establishment, that is uh, the National Health Service in Britain, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, nurses, social workers, occupational therapists who work for the NHS are increasingly seeking out opportunities to be trained by members of the Hearing Voices Network in this alternative perspective. So it's not only that people are flocking on their own to HBN support groups the way, for example, people flock to Freedom Center support group meetings, but there's an extra step that's happening that's so exciting in Britain right now where the mental health establishment is saying, we need to learn about this alternative point of view so that we can incorporate it in our approach to people who have this kind of experience. We know we don't really know how to address it, so we want to seek out training from voice hearers themselves. Um, I was very privileged to participate when I was in England for a year, a year ago, uh, in a training for three months run by Jackie Dillon in London, in which uh, mental health professionals of various kinds were trained over a 10-week period uh, in the HBN's approach, and then were able to go back to their organizations and incorporate this perspective in the regular mental health work. Uh, Jackie has just run, I think, the third set of uh, uh, these trainings. So there are now dozens of people who are being trained as part of their regular jobs. I have gone to many conferences in which um, mental health professionals are there. They're sent there by their bosses. They're paid to go to meetings in which um, voice hearers or other people with first-hand madness experiences are training them in how to think differently. Yeah, it's just it's just so inspiring. And and what are some of the other things that are happening? Because I know there's a there's a lot of different aspects to the um, the movement in Europe and the UK. And I know you've done a lot of research on it, but tell us a little bit more about other things that are that are going on that people may not know about in the U.S. Well, I think uh, one of the reasons it's important to start by mentioning HBN is because the model that the Hearing Voices Network created, which is now very well developed, there are many things that people can read about this. Um, has inspired other groups to form support and advocacy uh, networks based on the Hearing Voices Network's approach. So for example, um, several years ago, a group of people who have the label paranoia and have had experiences of intense suspicion, for example, um, came together and formed a group called the Paranoia Network. This was uh, begun in Sheffield in England. Um, I, I attended a major conference uh, a couple of years ago that was very, very inspiring because of the, say, 100 people that were there at this conference, half of them had personal experiences of paranoia, and the other half of them were mental health professionals uh, learning together from one another. 
Um, there's a there's a, a there's a joke in there, but I'm gonna just skip over it because I think it's like too an easy too much of an easy shot, you know, when you're talking about well, people with paranoia because there's so many stereotypes, you know, there's so there's much so like, many stereotypes, yeah. and the most the strongest stereotype about paranoia, which any mental health professional would tell you, is that people who are paranoid would never be in a support group because they wouldn't trust the other people enough to do that. That turns out to be wrong. That's another one of these assumptions that turns out to be wrong. Or that they, or that they don't, or that people don't have any distance from their paranoia. That they don't, they can't say, "Well, I go, I was really paranoid, and now I'm not paranoid, or I was paranoid, or, or I have these beliefs, and they think that they're paranoid, but I'm not quite sure." And I, yeah, so it's it's just it's this um, stereotype of this person who's just completely out there in this other state of consciousness, and they're unreachable, and there's just no kind of humanity there. They're certainly not like us, but actually, it turns out that people people are like us. And in contrast, um, one of the people who, for instance, gave a presentation at this conference I was just mentioning, Liz Pitt, who is from uh, Northern England, um, is someone I was just just uh, recommending uh, her paper to a colleague the other day. Uh, Liz Pitt wrote a very detailed, uh, very nuanced analysis of her own paranoid experience showing its links to the real events that had occurred in her life um, and the particular ways in which she came to think in certain ways. Um, She gave a very powerful presentation about this uh, to this conference and has written up this experience and has participated in um, uh, what's called in Britain uh, user-led research, that is, uh, research projects conducted in mental health facilities uh, designed by people who've had first-person, first-hand experience. Um, another similar kind of group, uh, also very, very inspiring to me, um, called Extraordinary People. Um, I went to the founding meeting of this group in Exeter in England a couple of years ago. These are people with uh, personality disorder diagnoses, borderline, schizoid, uh, narcissistic, um, you name some other ones, uh, antisocial. OCD um, would probably be one. Yeah, and these are people who came together, again, inspired by the Hearing Voices Network's approach, and uh, developed a network of support groups and approaches to helping people with this diagnosis who want to get a different perspective on their experience from that of the mental health system, which... Unfortunately, for people with personality disorder diagnoses, not only do they get a diagnosis, but they get told, since this is a, quote, personality disorder, this is just part of who you are. You don't even have symptoms, per se, that are part of this diagnosis. This is who you are, and who you are is pathologized. Um, So the assumption in standard mental health is that there's no treatment for personality disorders. You just have to make sure these people don't become violent, and then we should lock them up. That's, that's the general attitude. And it was uh, really powerful to uh, see people coming together um, and saying, there's another way we can look at this kind of experience. Why do you think that these um, these kind of very innovative approaches that are coming from from actually from the experience of what's called madness itself? Why do you think that they're they're gaining so much ground in England, but not so much in the U.S.? That's a really complicated question. The 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 some of the ingredients of the answer um, are these. The fact that Britain has a national health service run by the government rather than a privatized healthcare system as we do is one factor that makes a big difference because in the NHS, it is the people who run the NHS are managers. They're not doctors. They're bureaucrats. And The NHS is a massive organization. I think it's still the largest employer in Europe. Um, So thousands of people work for the NHS. And the people who are in leadership positions in that organization, as I say, are managers. They are deeply interested in saving money. We often hear in the United States that managed care and other kinds of organizations are interested in saving money. But when you look at their actual practices, you see that that's not the case. 
I'll give you an example of that in a moment. But in the NHS, what I've seen over and over again is that because the people making the decisions, for the most part, are not professionals like doctors or social workers or nurses, um, they don't have a viewpoint about what methods are best. So, for example, I've gone to many meetings where the NHS has sent its professional staff to be trained by survivor activists um, on the view that if a person could join a hearing voices group and be helped by that, rather than being put on an expensive medication, that would be good from the point of view of the NHS. It would save money and it would help the person. The NHS itself doesn't have a viewpoint about what's most likely to help such people. Whereas in the United States, because physicians run our, mental, our, our, our health system, they have a viewpoint already about what is going to be helpful. So if a psychiatrist is in charge of a program and someone comes along and says, well, really, you should talk to Will Hall about what would be helpful here, or you should talk to other members of Freedom Center, that psychiatrist is likely to say, well, that's silly. I have an MD. I've gone to school for many years. I know what's best. There's a professionalizing quality to it that leads to, um, even independent of all the financial arrangements in privatized healthcare, that lead to um, an over-reliance on authority in that in that sense. Yeah, because um, a lot of, I mean, they've really staked their careers and their identity on a certain perspective and a certain, like, this is what the, this is what the situation is. And, and deviating exactly from right. that is not, is not as easy as just investing money in something else. It's a real personal stake that they have. That's exactly right. And it's also a financial stake. So let's compare two doctors, one in England and one in the United States. A doctor in England who works for the NHS has a patient load of a certain number of people. Let's say just for round numbers, he has 100 patients. If you're one of his patients and you come to him and you say, Doc, you know what? I'm not going to be coming back to you. I don't really want your medication anymore. I'm going to a hearing voices group. I found that was more helpful. That physician does not have his or her life professionally changed in any way. That person is not going to make less money that person is not going to have to do anything different in terms of working with people. If you leave his or her practice, someone else will take your place. It doesn't make any difference. That doctor might have a personal viewpoint. He might say, gee, I don't think that's a good idea, or gee, I've heard about that, and maybe that would work. You know, he certainly could express his personal viewpoint, but from, a, from an economic viewpoint, it's not going to make any difference. Whereas in the United States, if you're seeing someone and you say, I'm not going to see you anymore because I found a peer support group that's just as helpful to me, that person has lost income. I think that's a major dimension yeah, of this issue. Yeah, it's just, it's, of it course, is, there's it, also... Other factors, sorry. I'm sure, too, as well. Well, another huge factor, which we can never, ever underestimate, is the intensely close relationship in the United States between the pharmaceutical companies and the medical establishment. Of course, there are medications prescribed to patients in other countries, but the relationship is not nearly as close. There is not. They don't have. Um, uh, they don't have the TV ads that we do. Yes, the only places in the world that have what, what the drug companies call direct-to-consumer advertising—that's a nice way of saying drug ads—the um, United States and New Zealand. And the reason that New Zealand is included in there is complicated. But basically, the United States is the main place where these ads are legal. Everywhere else in the world, it's illegal for drug companies to put ads on TV or in newspapers or in magazines that yeah. say, you know what? Ever feel sad? You might need our drug. Right. Become one of these happy, smiling people with clean clothes and nice teeth. Yes. Take our drug. Well, you know, Gail, there's so much to talk about. And it's so great to have you on the show. But we are, we are kind of running out of time. And I did want to give you a chance to answer one last question. Is, are, are, it sounds like you're pretty hopeful. Are you pretty hopeful that there's, there's changes underway in the treatment of people that have these um, madness uh, labels and that things are actually moving in the direction of your research and the perspective that you've been presenting? I'm tremendously hopeful. Um, I wouldn't say I'm hopeful about treatment in the sense that I'm not sure I would call um, 
peer support, uh, self-help, activism. I'm not sure I'd call any of that treatment. But right. I would say that there are alternatives, increasingly alternatives, for people who are in deep states of distress. And let me emphasize that I, I really reject the point of view that... Um, has sometimes been associated with people like Thomas Zaz, uh, who wrote a book called The Myth of Mental Illness, um, although I think Zaz himself is sometimes not well understood. But I really disassociate myself from any point of view that says people don't have any problems, this is all just labeling, there's nothing, there's no real issue here. I think that's wrong. Or people, should just, uh, or people should just take responsibility for themselves and the kind of yes. libertarian, like just, you know, you, you're just, it's the sort of the free market perspective. You just yes. got to like take yes. care of yourself and stop asking for Pull help. Pull yourself and, up by your bootstraps. Yeah, yeah. That, and I agree with you. I mean, that's never been the approach that the Freedom Center has taken because yeah. it's like, I, it's I, just not realistic. People need help, you know? People need help. So I want, I want to make really clear that I have a deep, deep sense of respect and um, uh, appreciation for the fact that people are in uh, often intense states of distress uh, that they want to escape and from which they need help. Um, but I think increasingly, and I do feel very optimistic about this, and this is what my entire work is about, um, is seeing that that help can often come in the form of support, interpretation, assistance, pragmatic as well as theoretical, from other people who've experienced that kind of difficulty. And I think one of the ironies of the United States is that this is the place that invented the self-help group. We have self-help groups in the United States for every conceivable kind of problem. But we don't understand that serious emotional distress, like many other less serious difficulties, is very much um, influenced by and can be affected by and helped by support from other people who've gone through this kind of experience. That paranoia, in that sense, is no different from weight problems or smoking or other difficulties for which people find self-help groups really helpful. Great. Well, we're, we're out of time. And thank you so much for joining us today on the show, Gail Hornstein. Thank you so much, Will. You've been listening to an interview with Gail Hornstein, who is a longtime ally and supporter of the Freedom Center. Gail is a tenured psychology professor at Mount Holyoke College in Hadley, Massachusetts. She is the author of um, To Redeem One Person is to Redeem the World, the biography of psychoanalyst Frida Fromm Reichman and her upcoming book, Agnes's Jacket, will be published um, hopefully sometime in early 2008. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is broadcast every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, on Pacifica Affiliate, WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio in Northampton, Massachusetts. For our live internet stream, podcasting, show archives, and more, visit madnessradio.net. Madness Radio is co-produced by Freedom Center and The Icarus Project. For more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head, contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. <laughs>